Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Now, storytelling is a buzzword in marketing. We're going to hear it again in Cannes this year over and over again. And I think it's become one of those concepts that people say the word and don't think about its implications. What's it really mean? How it impacts the work they do, do day in and day out. So I'd like you to kind of unpack that word for us right now, Jay. When, when you say storytelling, and you're a storyteller, and storytelling is critical to brand building, it starts with elevated ingredients and in food that no one else could serve at this level. So we're really a fine dining burger in a fast casual environment. And if people knew the extents to which we work to bring the best ingredients in the world, uh, you know, that's my job as a storyteller that I feel like I don't do a good enough job of is letting people know that. I've been to the farms. I've seen where, where we get our cattle, our pork, um, our chicken, et cetera. And th those are the places that if you eat meat, you want to, you would want your protein sourced from where we source our proteins. And that's a story I think about trying to tell all the time. So um, those elevated ingredients are first. Second is being an asset to the community. So um, you've probably heard me say this before. When someone says that's my Shake Shack versus a Shake Shack, I know that we've kind of uh, we're in a good place. When they say, well, my Shake Shack's the Upper East Side, or my Shake Shack is Short North in, in Columbus, that's that's uh, a great place because we don't feel like a chain. We feel part of that community. And the fact is, it's true. We are local. Like our, our general managers run those restaurants like their own restaurant. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Jay Livingston, the chief marketing officer of Shake Shack, the nearly 20-year-old roadside burger stand Danny Meyer founded in Madison Square Park in New York City. Since its first kiosk in 2004, where, by the way, I have enjoyed many shakes and burgers, Shake Shack has grown to nearly a billion-dollar brand with locations in 19 countries. Sales for the latest fiscal year grew about 20%. While we use the term renaissance man or woman too much, my guest Jay is truly, really a renaissance man. A graduate of Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, Jay's career path has included a 20-year stint at Bank of America, two years at Bark, makers of BarkBox, and now four years plus at Shake Shack. His side hustles are at least as interesting. Active angel investing, he's a co-founder of Unite America, a nonprofit to help bridge the partisan divide, he has produced three feature films, and he likes muscle cars and guitars. This is my conversation with a CMO who describes his career journey more of a meadow than a path, here's Jay Livingston. Jay, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I think it is destiny that we are recording today. Just yesterday, you opened a restaurant in the neighborhood I grew up in, 
in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I will be there just next week, and I am going to that restaurant and proudly going in and getting a burger and a shake. Do you want to join me? Super exciting. Man, I'd love to join you. We, uh, I've learned a lot about Lancaster and what an interesting town and community that is in the last few weeks uh, as we've gotten that one open. We, we had a line of 100 cars at the opening um, today. I guess that was yesterday. Yeah, so we've been yeah, really yesterday. excited to be there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's going to it's going to be well received by the community. That's yeah. Great. Believe That's me, there'll be lines for months, maybe even years. <laughs> it's <laughs> right by the Wegmans too, which is a great location for you. Yeah. Um, you know, interesting such a tourist-oriented community and a place where a lot of folks go both from out of town. Mm-hmm. You may know there's this huge basketball facility and multi-sport yep. facility they built there now and uh just a very interesting dynamic area, so we're really excited to be there. Well, it's also Destiny, I think, we're recording today because about a week ago, a little more than a week ago, you delivered a commencement address at Miami University College of Arts and Sciences. I watched it on YouTube. It is wonderful, and it is hysterical, so I highly recommend it. But I have to get you to talk about two concepts that you shared in that speech. And the first concept is Barry doesn't shake hands, and the second concept is the life triangle. So could you could you take us through the Barry doesn't shake hands story? Well, one is when you get, you know, asked to do a commencement speech like that, you're super excited about it for about two minutes. Right. And then you start to think, wow, what am I going to write this speech about? Particularly like how do I just open and bookend the speech? And so. Um, like a lot of marketers, my brain sort of thinks in stories. I mean, I'm a natural storyteller. And I thought, well, the last time I was standing in that place was when I was introducing Barry Manilow to, you know, 10,000 people at Millette Hall. And you, of course, went there in the 90s, right? Went there in the 90s. And we had a student-run concert board. Uh, The only one, I believe, in the country at that time, we actually... We had our own PL. We managed the budgets. We managed the production, the bookings. And during my four years, we had Parents Weekend shows Bill Cosby, James Taylor, Jay Leno, and then my senior, uh, Barry Manilow. So I thought, I, you know, when you're that age, you have these distinct memories. And I had a very distinct memory of Barry walking into basically uh, underneath the stadium with his manager into the facility and it was customary for us to greet the artist. And so I walked up and I stuck out my hand and I said, Mr. Manilow, so excited you're here, welcome to Oxford. And he had mirrored out sunglasses and a big trench coat and he just looked at my hand. He didn't move, <laughs> did not reach for it. And his manager leaned in and said, Barry doesn't shake hands. <laughs> and Barry doesn't shake hands became synonymous with rejection a line of rejection amongst my friends so we would say oh you know i i uh, asked this girl out the other night what'd she say she buried and shake hands so that <laughs> became kind of this lie that we just used as um a, sort of a f- funny form of rejection and part of the speech at the end i sort of wrapped it around and said you know i talked about resilience in the speech and um, life is going to be challenging. Everybody's going to get hit in the mouth and uh, Barry's not always going to shake your hand. But as I was doing that in the video, I had the AV guys turn on Mandy, the song yeah, Mandy. I, I heard it. Was at full blast yeah. in the arena. And it's such a great kind of crescendo. And you were cracking up. I was cracking up. Well, the audience was cracking up. I meant it to be very serious. And then I realized <laughs> this isn't being taken seriously. So I'm going to roll with it. 
And, uh, and it worked out really well. And it, it's always fun to end with music. Again, as a marketer, you know, you think, how do I make, what, what tools can I add to this experience to really make it pop for the students and the families that were there? So um, having the music at the end, I thought kind of tied it all together and made it fun. Well, if I ask any questions you don't want to answer, I know what you'll say. Barry doesn't shake hands. So we'll just sure. keep moving on in this, in this right. episode. That's right. So the second concept I want, I mean, the speech is really lovely in every way. So congratulations on it. And it's always wonderful to return to your alma mater. And you, you've certainly talked about that. But I love this concept you shared with the graduates of a life triangle and the three elements to it. And to be sure you're in the right place on those at every point in your life and to reflect on that. So I think it's a lovely way to start the show by getting you to talk about the love tri- or the life triangle, maybe you know, love's part of it, the life triangle and how you use it in your m- career meadow of a life, which we will talk about later, the meadow, the, the meadow metaphor. The love triangle is something totally different. So we'll, have to talk <laughs> right. about well that. we can talk about that too. <laughs> Barry doesn't yeah. shake hands. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. (laughs) <laughs> the life triangle is a is this idea that when I was right out of college, I remember thinking I need some way to kind of set up a way to think about my life and evaluate how I'm doing. And it became kind of clear to me there were three sort of points of the triangle that were really important to how I thought about life. So one was how much I was enjoying my personal life, the city I was in, the friends I had, the extracurricular activities I was doing. The second point of the triangle was how much I was enjoying work. Was I fulfilled? Was it challenging? Did I like the people I worked with, Um, et cetera? And then the third point was how much money I was making. And, you know, it's funny that sometimes regarded, uh, as I've said it lately, as a little bit crass, but the reality is, especially at that age, how much money you're making is a big part of um, basically uh, uh, it's a big part of your life at that point. Mm -hmm. And so what I was always striving to do is understand where I sat on each of those areas and understand the trade I might be willing to make. So I might get a job where I'm going to go learn a ton. It will be a fascinating job, but it would be somewhere in a city that may not be my first choice and where I don't know people. And would I be willing to make that trade or go take a job where don't really love the job, not learning a lot, but I'm going to bank a ton of money for a couple of years. And that's going to give me optionality down the road. So I just think it's important. It's a it's a good framework, I think, for someone to think about how am I doing on each of those measures of the life triangle? And obviously, where we'd all like to be is to have high scores on all three. But that rarely happens. Even as you get older, that rarely happens. Yeah. And just knowing where that where you are on those, I think, is kind of a, a is a helpful framework to think about your life. How do you feel about where you are on those today? It's a very good question. I love my job. Um, I love the people I work with. Uh, I, uh, you know, we'll talk about that. But I, I'm sort of fulfilling a lot of my kind of life goals on on the career that I have right now, both with Shake Shack and some of the things that I do that are job related. 
uh, my personal life. I just think New York City, when I look back at the top five best decisions I've ever made in my life, moving to New York City 15 years ago was probably number one or two. Hmm. Uh, and, and it opened up a tremendous amount of doors personally and professionally, but there's just so much to do in this city, so many dynamic, interesting, diverse people that you can easily um, put together and mingle with uh, in ways that most cities just doesn't happen. Um, and then, hey, I'd love Shake Shack to, uh, I'd love our stock price to keep moving higher. We're doing okay at the moment, but um, you know, financially, I've been really blessed to be able to work for some companies that have done a great job. And it's it's not cheap to live in New York, and it would really not be cheap to raise a family and so forth. So that is something you have to keep an eye on. But I'm feeling really happy with all three. And and um, uh, if you'd have told me when I was 25, if I'd get to that place, it would have seemed very daunting at the time. Yeah, for me too. Hey, uh, speaking of the life triangle and the three corners of it, your founder and chairman, Danny Meyer, seems to be doing pretty well on all three of those. I've had the great pleasure to meet him in the past and to get to know him a bit. We did something together with the Lexus company and just he's so personable, he's so wonderful, he's such, such a lovely human being. So I'd just like you to riff a little bit as we get started here about, you know, I know he's not your CEO, we'll talk about him in a minute. But what areas of marketing and branding do you occasionally talk about with Danny, if you do? Danny's chairman of our board, and Danny's just a special human. I mean, he, for instance, right after I gave that commencement address, sent me a note immediately. I'm not even sure where he saw it. He, he watched it, sent me a note. He gave thoughtful commentary on how the speech went. Uh, you know, and that's the kind of person Danny is you've probably been around these people too. You may be one of them is you wonder how does this person have enough hours in the day to send so many personal, thoughtful notes, comments, you know, he's the first one to help in and jump, uh, jump into something to help make connections, or he's a constant idea machine. He, he's just one of those people. They say, be careful meeting your heroes, but he really lives up to so much of the hype which has been a lot of fun. And, and what Danny has is that sort of instinctual feel for hospitality. I'll just give you one quick example of, uh, we were down doing a tasting maybe a year ago at this point, and we had launched Can Wine. And we had a couple of labels. I had a couple of labels I was debating about what the Can Wine would be. And he looked at him and he said, there's just one rule here. It's you should make them fun. Mm -hmm. If the label's not fun, and if drinking wine at Shake Shack isn't fun, if you worry about anything else, it's kind of a miss. And, you know, he just synthesized that immediately. Like that immediately basically told me, one, the label I was thinking was wrong because the label is too serious. It wasn't yeah. fun. And he's got a way of sort of seeing through things to just get to that core essence of what's going to motivate people. Uh, and, and that's something I really appreciate about him. What else have you learned from Danny over the years? I mean, this idea of simplicity and cutting through and, and, and being and being so darn personal. I mean, I just called his office a couple of weeks ago to ask where I should celebrate New York for this story that a couple of colleagues and I did for the Harvard Business Review. It was a, we worked on it for about 13 months. We never met each other in person. And we were all coming to New York to celebrate. They got back to me within minutes, had a great restaurant recommendation. We had a great table. We had a great time. You know, it's just, uh, that's his vibe. I'll tell you the best thing I've 
I've learned so many things from him, but one of the one of the main ones is this concept of uh, a charitable assumption. And so we're going to treat everyone or anything that is sort of done to you or that you engage with with a charitable assumption, right? And I have a little bit of a fighter in me. I'm Scots Irish. Um, mm-hmm. I may come by that naturally. And there's a book about the Scots Irish called Born Fighting. And, you know, I'm competitive and I tend to, if, if I if I met with some resistance, I tend to, my instinct is to come back with that resistance. Danny's idea of like, I'm going to give everyone a charitable assumption. So uh, is such a great way to walk through life, right? Mm-hmm. And it helps you neutralize and take a step back that instinct some of us might have. I've always wondered if Danny actually has it or not. Uh, or if he's just that, uh, he was born with the charitable assumption. But, you know, regarding in hospitality is always a series of little problems to overcome. And if you approach all of those problems as a, a battle, it's going to wear you out. But if you approach them all as something where I'm going to assume this person has the best intentions and just might have made a mistake or having a bad day, et cetera. Um, it's really helped me with not just my work life, but also me as a leader and as a manager and just even in my personal life uh, of, of leading with that. You probably see a lot more of your CEO than you see of Danny. And I've heard you talk about you have a terrific relationship with Randy. So could you talk a little, little bit about what, what makes that relationship terrific? Obviously, a CMO-CEO relationship is crucial when, it, when it's not working. The brand is usually not healthy. The company's often not healthy. So I've heard you speak about Randy. So could you tell us a bit about how you built such a productive and, and positive relationship with him? Well, I've joked before that if the CEO doesn't necessarily see eye to eye from a personality or a taste or a creativity standpoint with a lot of other C team members, but they're fantastic at what they do, it's really not that big a deal, right? You can, you, if, if you've got an incredible ch- chief technology officer, you may not sort of vibe on a certain level, but they really get the work done. That can be very successful. If you don't really get along and vibe at some level with your your CEO when you're a CMO and creatively you see things very differently, you have different responses to things, it's going to be a problem. Um, It's going to make both of your lives not as fun. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you don't add and see things, you know, have different points of view. And one of the things that I think Randy and I, we see a lot of things the same way, but where we don't, we have the trust in our relationship now to be able to debate it and to be able to really push back on the other one. He gives me a lot of ability to push back and and he's certainly not afraid to push back on me. And I really appreciate that. And so, uh, but having that kind of, he loves marketing. Uh, He is an entrepreneur like Danny. They really built this brand from nothing. And that means they have really good core instincts on what's right for the brand. And so, my job is to both understand that and take that and then help help expand that vision and bring it to life even more with the skill sets that I bring to the table. Um, but at its base, you gotta you gotta be excited about the same things, or uh, it's going to be a struggle in your in your daily life, and it's going to be stressful for you as the CMO. 
How do you keep, as you expand and you open, I think I've seen the data, like a store every four days. I don't know if that's still accurate. Yeah. You, you opened one in my hometown this week. Uh, how do you keep it all consistent, right? Great brands are creative, they're enduring, but they're also consistent as hell, right? If you buy a, if you go, if you go to LVMH to buy one of their luxury brands and you buy something in Tokyo or Paris or New York, it feels, looks, and the experience is very, very similar. How do you do that when you're expanding as fast as you are? Do you have a framework that you follow, a set of behaviors, principles, lots of communication? I mean, what is it? It's because I visit many of your stores, restaurants, and I kind of feel a similar thing when I go in. I feel I'm having fun. I'm eating great food. The people are super. It's buzzy. There's a lot of people around. So how do you keep it so damn consistent? It's a lot of work, but I would say we have one huge structural advantage to how we decided to build the company, which is we own them all in the U.S., so we don't franchise. Um, mm -hmm. We license to airports and stadiums, but otherwise we actually own the restaurants. And so we're not in this situation where so many restaurant chains are managing franchisees who all have different opinions about what it should be like in their particular region or what they're passionate about or not passionate about. You know, the trade-off of that is you can't always grow quite as fast. I mean, if we had franchised, we might have a thousand Shake Shacks in the U.S. Right now we have about 300, um, but it gives us so much more control of that experience. And I think for what we do, that's been a really important decision. And then we're in 19 countries now, and we license to one licensee per country overseas. It's often a, a local family that has deep relationships and doing successful retail. And we have pretty strict um, guidelines about how those licensed countries are going to work. We, we ship a lot of the product. Um, if we can't get exactly what we want to our specifications there, we keep the menu really consistent with a few exceptions on, you know, we'll have a falafel burger in the Middle East or we'll do cherry blossom shakes in Japan or these kinds of things. But we really try to stay, understand what makes Shake Shack, Shake Shack, um, not compromise on ingredients or any of those things. And if you've got that sort of foundation that they're all working from, it makes the decisions on when you do want to customize something, it makes those much easier. We're going to talk more about your role at Shake Shack, but before we do that, we've been talking about some of your bosses, right? Danny and Randy. You had an incredible boss at Bank of America and Finocane, who was head of strategy and marketing from what, 2005-ish to 2015. You were there for 20 years. What did you learn from Anne that's helped you be the leader you are today? Well, Anne really built an organization that was just so professional. I, I mean, you know, banking, the stakes are high. The um, level of, you're, you're dealing with people's money and their finances and something that is like extremely important to them. And you're constantly under fire when you work for like a one of the two or three biggest banks in the world. And what I thought Ann built was an organization there. And we had a couple of really good leaders of the marketing or before Ann too, really raising people's game, learning to say in each of these functions of marketing, I want the top level of professionalism we can find. We worked with the best agencies in the world, no matter what that function was, if it was your creative agency, your digital agency, your PR agency, et cetera. Um, 
we had high standards for everything around sports marketing or if we did anything um, on the ground in engagement wise, um, everything we did in the digital sphere was really top notch. So you kind of learn, okay, this is a level that uh, this is how to do things at a very high level at a very massive organization. And that served me really well when I went on to work at growth companies down the road who were all about being scrappy and fast. And I had to learn a little bit how to get faster and how to get scrappier. But when I sort of learned that, balancing that deep experience with how to execute complex projects um, at a really high level, that has served me well. I think it's been a nice combination. You are Shake Shack's first CMO. And when you joined, this was already kind of a hot growing brand. Why four years ago did they decide, Jay, that they needed a CMO? I think they realized they had hit that point of growth where um, what had gotten them to that point was not going to be where they needed to go from there to really scale and scale the business. And, um, you know, when you start to really ramp up that hockey stick kind of growth, uh, you want to professionalize the group. And I think that's what I was brought in to do, which was really professionalize and um, think about, okay, how do we keep our creativity, but also put some processes in place that are going to keep us on the road? How do we bring guest insights and analytics and data into more of our decision-making? Because we had always been purely instinctual. And um, what I've said in other podcasts and places, we like to be instinct-led and data-supported. And when they asked me in the interview, who would be the first hire you would bring onto the team? And I said, I will build a guest insights and analytics function. Because right now, if I walk in to Randy's office, the CEO, and we both have an opinion on something, I know how that that's going to go if I don't have data behind my thinking. And so um, we've really built a great function around understanding our guests much more. And we still want to lead with instinct. We don't want to follow the crowd. We don't want to mm -hmm. be a company that does things by focus groups. Uh, on the other hand, data helps highlight opportunities for us. It helps keep us from making a mistake. Um, and it's really, I think, given us a lot more, um, a lot of balance to that sort of instinctually led approach. Now, four years later, you've built out guest you know, analytics and insights. How else is marketing different from when you joined four years ago at Shake Shack? What capabilities have you built and what kind of things have you focused on with your team? Well, I really told uh, Randy at the time that I never really want to be the marketer where someone just hands me a product and goes and says, sell it. And then when it doesn't sell, or if it doesn't sell, I said, well, we didn't market this well enough. You know, we didn't have a product. I have a, pro a background in product development too. So I really asked like our deal was, if this goes well, I would like to also add our culinary and menu innovation to my team so that I got to oversee the product. So we could do something that I call really building marketing into the product. So instead of being handed that thing to go sell, we start from the very beginning and say, what's interesting about this item? And I'm not somebody that gets in there and says, oh, the mouthfeel of this is wrong or the acids aren't balancing. But what I am saying is like, what's the story? 
behind this white truffle burger, let's say, that we're going to do for what we call an LTO, which is a limited time option. We're just ending what's been a really successful run of that white truffle burger. And as if, if building marketing the product is all about, all right, what is it during this time in the economy that are going to make white truffles really interesting to people? Well, it's tough out there. Right. And white truffle is like one of these little affordable indulgences that we can really bring to the world and, and portray it that way. Like we had a billboard that said we only got I've ever done a couple of billboards ever. And it said truffles in this economy. And we were sort of playing off That's this good. idea that yeah. you could still have that affordable luxury. And that to me is building marketing into the product from scratch and, and being able to oversee that function. Uh, along with the digital guest experience, um, the Shack app and web and all those things that I oversee, we really get to build that soup to nuts guest experience. And I think it gives us a big advantage. I have heard you talk about the importance of being accessible as a CMO. And I have to say, when I was at PNG, I was sometimes criticized for being too accessible. You know, I was out there a lot. I was very open to people and to interruptions and to ideas. So it's something I, you know, worked to balance. So just any insights from you, Jay, and how you manage that, being accessible and still getting the work done that needs to be done as CMO of a fast growth company. So I read, I think it might have been a Harvard Business Review article, but I read years ago that the two qualities that people most want in a boss, and this was for CEOs, but really any boss, were reliability and accessibility. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so interesting, right? Because you might say if you didn't know better, well, I want a visionary boss, or I want a super smart boss, or I want a boss that is like, um, you know, constantly driving the team forward. But then when I even thought about my own personal experience, reliability being, does this person do what they say they're going to do? And that's really how they define reliability in, in that study, as I recall. Um, and then accessibility. We've all had managers that like you couldn't get a hold of and you, or you couldn't get answers and they weren't available to you. And that gets really, really frustrating. And so I don't think I'm ever going to beat people on raw, you know, at the bank and other places. I've worked with some super brilliant people. And I'm not going to go in there and just crush everybody on raw horsepower. So if that, I was always relieved to see, well, reliability and accessibility, those are two things that are in my control. So I can help craft an environment where people feel both of those things. And um, I, I've really focused on that. And yes, there is a trade-off at times with that accessibility part that if you're all over the place, you're maybe not as focused as you need to be mm -hmm. or, or can't always concentrate. Um, I've had some successful leaders that I would not describe as accessible necessarily. Um, but for me, it's just part of my personality and something, you know, a strength that I've chosen to lean into. And, um, and I hope it uh, results in people feeling more comfortable and getting things done more quickly. Mm -hmm. how, in how intentional are you, Jay, and how you spend your time? I mean, do you think at on Sunday night about the week coming up, I mean, there's some people like the famous Jim Collins, the author who like tracks every minute of his life and how he spends his time. I'm not quite that disciplined, but I'm just thinking you want to be an accessible or reliable manager and inspiring manager, successful leader. How intentional are you and how you look at your calendar and your time? I don't think I do nearly as good of a job of it as I could. And it's something I think about a lot. 
Um, what I've always been good at is I'm a list maker. So going back to those mm -hmm. Franklin Covey, do you remember the Franklin yeah, Covey planners? I sure do. Yep. Right. And I was always really diligent at that left side being a calendar and the right side being the tasks yeah. that I would accomplish and rolling those over to the day. So I've always been good at lists and working through lists. Um, and so that right there, I think, is is a helpful combination of being good with time management. I don't sleep a lot. I think I squeeze a lot of things um, into I'm very thoughtful about like, what does my week look like? How am I scheduling all this? I have a couple non-negotiables like getting exercise or some sort of competition. I have to have mm -hmm. that in my life uh, in the mornings and, and, and knowing what your non-negotiables are. What I don't think I do, I think I procrastinate too much. I think that I um, am often not as disciplined about establishing, okay, those two to three things that you really want to get done. You know, the, the Jim Collins of the world will say, you've got to be maniacally focused on those two or three because everything else doesn't really matter. And so I think about that a lot, but I'm not always great at putting in execution. It's something I'm always working on. What are you hyper-focused on right now? Well, I was focused on that commencement speech for about two weeks. Yeah, I can right. take that. It showed. Before, it showed, by the way. <laughs> and it, that happened. It, it felt planned. It, it, it felt intentional, but it also felt that you were playing to the energy in the room. Which I think is the, yeah. is the hallmark of a, of any great uh, speaker, any great leader. You know what's funny? There's there's a little lesson in there somewhere, which is um, procrastinators famously. You know, when they study procrastination, they also realize that people can't get their heads fully in the game until right before uh, doing the work at times. I actually was writing that speech up until 20 minutes before I went to the arena, which is why I actually read it off a laptop mm -hmm. because I was still typing, typing the speech in. And I got a bunch of stuff in in the last 12 hours of even arriving on campus that I think helped it feel fresh and topical if it did. And um, as a marketer and a storyteller, that's such a big part of, of it is not feeling canned, right? Of feeling that you're touching the moment. And so the trade-off of that is when everything happens at the last minute, it can both stress you out and the people around you out quite a bit. Um, and so uh, I think of that a lot in life of um, how exactly can you keep that spontaneity within what you're doing, but also do it in somewhat of a planned manner. Now, I listened to a lot of talks you gave and I read a lot of things about you in preparation for this in addition to the commencement speech. And I would have to say the word you seem to use most often is storytelling. And you've already used that in this, in this discussion when you talk about the product and building the story in early on to the product. Now, storytelling is a buzzword in marketing. We're going to hear it again in Cannes this year over and over again. And I think it's become one of those concepts that people say the word and don't think about its implications What's it really mean? How it impacts the work they do, do day in and day out. So I'd like you to kind of unpack that word for us right now, Jay. When, when you say storytelling, and you're a storyteller, and storytelling is critical to brand building, how does that come to life with you? How does it affect how you work? How does it affect how you see uh, your role as CMO of Shake Shack? I, I think what great storytelling does is it elicits emotion of some kind, right? It's not just about sharing information. We all know that great stories 
make you feel something. Um, it's funny, some of my side hustles that I've done is I've executive produced a couple of films. I've got involved in some political stuff. And part of that is those are all cousins to good marketing. Like uh, I think if you've ever, you know, you've shot a lot of commercials in your life. A commercial is just a mini film and the best commercials really make you feel. And mm -hmm. I am constantly thinking about how do we not be in that sort of gray middle? And it means taking chances. It means sometimes risking offending or risking causing some controversy and, and knowing who you are and what your guidelines are become really important if you're going to be in the provocative storytelling game. But ultimately, um, it's about emotion and it's about, I want people to say, I love Shake Shack. You know, if people say like, oh, it's a good it's a good value oriented meal. Uh, you know, that's not who we are and that's not what I'm going for. I mean, we're really all wanting to create with a hospitality touch or an amazing burger. We say it's not about the food. It's about creating an uplifting experience at Shake Shack. And so that experience, that word experience and uplifting are very intentional. That is almost, you've been a part of the story uh, if you feel that way. Um, and th that's just kind of the core of everything we do and everything that I enjoy doing. When you think about the Shake Shack brand, are those the kinds of things that you want to see differentiation on? Uplifting, experience, you know, loving the brand? Is that, are those the kinds of things that you track and that, 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 that you measure in terms of your success of building the brand? Yes, for sure. Oh, one of those is, are we create, it's not just about the food, it's about an uplifting experience. We really have three, right? Our food raises the bar. Mm -hmm. It starts with elevated ingredients and in food that no one else could serve at this level. So we're really a fine dining burger in a fast casual environment. And if people knew the extents to which we work to bring the best ingredients in the world, uh, you know, that's my job as a storyteller that I feel like I don't do a good enough job of is letting people know that. I've been to the farms. I've seen where, where we get our cattle, our pork, um, our chicken, et cetera. And the, those are the places that if you eat meat, you want to you would want your protein sourced from where we source our proteins. And that's a story I think about trying to tell all the time. So um, those elevated ingredients are first. Second is being an asset to the community. So um, you've probably heard me say this before. When someone says that's my Shake Shack versus a Shake Shack, I know that we've kind of, uh, we're in a good place. When they say, well, my Shake Shack's the Upper East Side or my Shake Shack is Short North in, in Columbus, that's, that's a, a great place because we don't feel like a chain. We feel part of that community. And the fact is it's true. We are local. Like our, our general managers run those restaurants like their own restaurants. And so that's a big part of it. And then that third thing is that uplifting experience that comes through a combination of, yes, is your hot food hot, cold food cold? Was the order accurate? Did it taste really good? But it's also, did I get a touch somehow in the restaurant where somebody dropped my kid a little cup of custard because um, something wasn't delivered quickly? Or do I love the design of what's happening in the restaurant, et cetera? The, those are the things, when we get those three things right, um, we're in a pretty strong position. I also found in my research a couple zinger quotes from you, so I want to talk about maybe two or three of them. The uh -oh. first one is, the bigger we get, the smaller we need to act. Tell us I about believe that. 
That is a Danny quote initially. Mm. Randy might be upset at me. It might have been Randy's, but I think that's Danny. And it's just this idea of, you know, we cook everything to order. We want to be local and part of the community. And that means as you get big, you've got to be really careful that it just doesn't start to feel industrial. That, you know, there are very few scenarios where, um, you know, the best food experiences many of us will ever have is that local mom and pop restaurant where we got delivered this incredible meal with love and with um, a, a taste of what was going on locally. And we had a great environment and that's what we strive for. And so I think that's always a little bit of a caution of like, let's don't get too big so that we lose being able to deliver that personal close experience. Next quote, mine has been more of a career meadow than a career path. And you talked a bit about that in the commencement speech, but I, and I love the thought. So tell us about that quote. Well, the advice to me when I was really struggling in college to figure out, quote, what I wanted to do, everyone was asking me, what do you want to do? And I had friends that knew they wanted to be an accountant or they wanted to be a doctor or they wanted to be a lawyer. And I was just not in that place. I was curious and interested in so many things. I was a liberal arts major and I really loved all my various coursework. And I was struggling with that because I, I it wasn't pointing me any one place. And I met with someone that was a friend of my father's who listened to me and heard me talk about what I liked and like, and he said, listen, a lot of people are going to tell you, um, they're going to ask you what you want to do with your life and where do you want to go? He said, don't listen to those people. For you, it's never going to be a career path. It's going to be a career meadow. You're going to wander the meadow. You're going to have to test different things and see what you like and don't like and explore those interests. And if you fill a lot of those in, you'll be fine, but that's going to be you. Don't frustrate yourself thinking that you're going to be one of these specialized things. And for, for those of us whose brains work that way, that is very liberating to hear that and just takes a lot of the pressure off. So I've always regarded my career as a bit of a meadow. And of course it shows in the, in the various places that I've worked um, and the kind of functions that I've gotten to oversee. There's a lot of upside in that thought. Is there any downside? Sure. It's wandering the meadow is it's easy to get distracted. Right. And it's easy to run down lots of different uh, areas that might not be productive. So you have to be comfortable with some of that that may not lead to anything um, that gets back to some of that discipline around career planning. I don't think someone whose head works the way mine does is ever going to be someone who is just maniacally focused on that one thing. That'll always be a challenge for me. It's an important one that I want to balance with, but um, for me, I have to explore and I use that to inform everything else I do. It's one of the reasons that I do a lot of the angel investing I've done. It's not because I think I'm ever going to make any real money at that. It's really to um, be around all these founders young people that are doing really cutting edge things in spaces that are not similar to what I do, because you take little aspects of that, you can apply it to your day job, you can apply it to your storytelling. And I get a lot of inspiration from areas that are way outside of food or retail or even consumer facing businesses. Well, let's talk about this career meadow a bit more, Jay. You took a two year hiatus after leaving Bank of America after 20 years there. And I'd like you to talk about what your thinking was then. What was your strategy? How did you approach it? 
What was your learning about yourself during that time? Was that easy for you, difficult? Well, one is I started, I was recruited out of Miami University to Nations Bank and started basically three weeks out of undergrad. And I'd worked 20 years uh, with no more than, I don't think, 12 days in a row of, you know, or 14 days of vacation that whole time. And so um, I loved my career at the bank and everybody I worked with. It was such a great, I think about it all the time of what I learned there. But after the financial crisis, we went from what was really a huge growth company. You know, we bought 450 financial institutions while I was at Nations Bank, we, including one being Bank of America and then um, changed the name to Bank of America. And I loved that growth orientation of the company. And um, I think when I started, we were a mid-sized regional bank. And then 16 years later, we were the fourth most profitable company in the world. So sometimes people ask me, like, we've never worked for a growth company really before, <laughs> before BarkBox. And no, that's, that's definitely not the case. But once the financial crisis hit, and then we bought Merrill Lynch and Countrywide, and we became federally capped on our deposits that we could make, the job just got a little less interesting to me. Because at that point, we were an aircraft carrier, that it just took thousands of people to move you know, a tiny amount one way or the other. At the same time, I'd been doing this angel investing in these growth companies and was really just enjoying being close to these founders that were pivoting, moving quickly. They were close to the customer. I'd gotten really far away from our core customer and who we were. So the bank had a thing called the rule of 60, which is your age plus years of service that allowed you to retire um, when that came up. And so it had been, they got rid of it years ago, but I was grandfathered in. And I said, you know, when I turned 41 in a year, I think I'm going to take that retirement opportunity, which allowed me to have some insurance benefits and some of my options vested, et cetera. And they said, the first question was, we didn't even know that still existed. <laughs> and then secondly, like, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to take uh, a year and a half off. And I, I just want to spend time with family. I want to travel the world. I wanted to restore an old loft in the West Village and restore a muscle car. And I was working on this political uh, project, which called now Unite America, that I was interested in. And I just wanted to explore some of these other paths. And when I said moving to New York was one of the top five decisions I've ever done, taking that time off was second. And I've come to realize it in ways that I didn't even understand when I decided to do it. But, you know, if we could all structure our life to have a couple of long sabbaticals, like I, I, the value of having that sabbatical and stepping away and getting into another headspace, you can't do that in two or three weeks. Um, and I did a lot of investing. I, I just all the travel I got to do where I deeply immersed myself in places like Japan and Brazil and Montana, and you know, you could just get into the, all these interesting places. It stimulated a lot of thinking in me. And, and then after about a, a year, I was not ready to go back. I said, I'm going to take another year. And then I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And then after about nine months into that second year, I started to realize, you know, I am missing a little bit of that fulfillment that I get from a career. I'm missing the paycheck too. Um, but I, I'm missing, I'm missing being into something that I really control. I don't want to be a consultant all the time at this phase yet. Uh, and so 
I decided, you know, I think it's time to jump back in and be a CMO somewhere. Um, and so I had a bunch of conversations and luckily some of that angel investing allowed me some credibility in that space. And I was able to go to BarkBox and be their first ever CMO and uh, learned a ton there. So, th but that time off was really so valuable. Um, and, and if we could structure our dream scenario, I do think everybody would get a hunk of time at some point in their careers um, I've seen some people retire and they didn't, they really didn't need to retire. What they really needed is a year or two off, mm -hmm. but it's just hard to do that. If you're, if you were to take a sabbatical now, how would you spend it differently? Well, I'm a project person, so it wouldn't be completely differently. I've always got a bunch of projects I want to work on. I mean, I love old cars. I love architecture and design, um, having a restoring a, uh, renovating an old loft was a great sort of foundational project to keep your attention that, you know, in between the travel and everything else, I had to really spend time like working on that. I think if I was going to take that, I, I think I'm super invigorated right now. I'm not feeling that need as much as I was. So I don't have that burnout mm -hmm. feel. Um, I, listen, I'd love more time in the day. and I'd love to be able to still go take another, spend a month in Japan again and cruise around there. But um you can't do that easily and get deeply immersed in a in a very serious job. So I'm not really in that headspace where I would would want to take a sabbatical at the moment. Five years from now, maybe. And what I don't want to do is necessarily I don't like this idea of retirement. Mm -hmm. I just maybe. like someone like you has obviously done so many interesting things throughout. I don't think we serve people well at all when you just say you know, I'm going to hang this job up and I'm going to retire and I'm not going to have um, that source of fulfillment, et cetera. I've got some friends that are financially lucky enough to be able to leave their jobs early and now they're kind of missing it a little bit. So anyway, I have lots of thoughts about, yeah. about that. Would you restore my 1963 Alfa Romeo 2600? Would you do that for me as a side project? No Italian. <laughs> no, because <laughs> the Italian cars are in a completely... Uh, another ball game from American Muscle. Mine's a 1968 Pontiac Firebird convertible. Oh, that's a modern car. Yeah. So I, I thought I might hear Barry doesn't shake hands to that question. So <laughs> that's kind of what you said, in other words. I'd love to ride it or drive it sometime. <laughs> it's, it's not it's not operating right now. Yeah. Like, right, like most right. good old Italian cars. Hey, I want I want to shift to the creative brief. You have a lot of side hustles and a lot of interests. And one of them is producing films, and you've done a few of them. What's your favorite film you have executive produced? Well, I've done three. And one of the things you learn in the entertainment industry is, as you know, creative endeavors are very uncertain for how they're going to turn out. And it really is art. It's like uh, you've got to combine the script with the director and the producer and the talent and then the sets and the costume and everything has to work. And then sometimes there's just a magic that makes them work or not work. Um, I learned so much through those three films, even just being an executive producer, which was like I had small involvement on the creative side and kind of helped put some of the financials of, of the films together. Um, my favorite is Driveways, which is this little film that made no money. We shot it for a million dollars, basically in upstate New York. It's a charming, adorable script, very well acted with a bunch of people that have gone on to do some really cool things. But at that particular moment, the in, nobody was buying these smaller independent films. And what's ironic to me is um, it 
of the three, it did the worst financially, but it's the best film in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's a combination of what I talk about a lot, art and science, right? And you got to get both sides right. And it's the combination. What I think makes a great CMO is someone who, when you're around creatives, they feel like you're one of them. And when you're around the business people, they feel like you're one of them. And you're not necessarily the best at either, but you can really bring the two together. And that's so much of what filmmaking is. Uh, and in that case, I think we did most of the art pretty well, but the science was not was not there for it. And so it didn't really make money. But man, I love the process of filmmaking. It's, it's super fun and it's very enlightening um, if you're a storyteller. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you growing up in Knoxville, Tennessee? So I know this is a question you you um, ask a lot, and I think I'm going to give you the best answer you've ever had to this question. <laughs> there you go. If it's not the best, it's going to be one of the most unique. You're a good storyteller, Jay. <laughs> I think. I've never, I've never <laughs> told this publicly before. When I was in third grade, I was sitting in line outside of our gym, uh, and this kid looked down at me, this kind of scary kid that was in our class, and he said, I see you're wearing booty buddies. And he said, I don't like booty buddies. And if you show up with those booty buddies tomorrow, I'm going to beat you up and down this hall. <laughs> and <laughs> my first question is, what are booty buddies? I don't even know what that is. And I said something to him about, what are booty buddies? He said, it's those no-name shoes. Oh. Now, my dad, uh, and I'd say this if he was sitting right here, he was tied as two coats of paint, as somebody would say. <laughs> but we got our shoes from a place up on Kingston Pike called Athletic House out of a grab bin that they were not a brand, right? So they were completely unbranded. I got home that day and I said, did you know you've got me wearing booty buddies? I need some shoes right now that have a logo on them. And my dad said, well, you know, there's not a lot of sympathy for that. He's like, tough it out. You know, I'm not buying you new shoes um, just because you're getting picked on a little bit at school. And I mean, I avoided this kid for like a week. By the way, he later went to prison, I'm pretty sure, for murder. Oh, oh, boy. True story. So this I avoided this kid for a week. <laughs> Good for you. And I was like, I got to get... I got to get some brand name shoes in here. So we ended up in a in that PE class about a week later. And it was one of these deals where this is good 80s exercise. The gym teacher just said, just run in circles in the gym for the 30 minutes. And whoever ever runs the most laps, you know, is the winner. So I, I was a, luckily a pretty good runner. And I beat this kid. He came in second. He begrudgingly came up to me at the end of class. He goes, I guess those shoes do all right. <laughs> but despite that, I waited for a good sale and there were some Pumas on sale at the mm-hmm. athletic house and I got some Puma shoes and I felt much better that I had a real brand. And if there was ever a story that reinforced the power of a brand, right? The power of a logo, yeah. even yeah. to a third grader, that was a good visceral one for me. Well, the shoe business has done a great job of building brands, right? Yeah, it's, for sure. It's, a, it's an emotional decision. And one that says a lot about who you are, what you're wearing. So yeah. it's a great category. Hey, uh, you, you've done a lot of angel investing. What's the most inter- interesting company or founder you've, you've invested in? Man, I love um, one of my close friends. One of the first businesses I did is a lingerie and ready-to-wear business called Fleur du Mall. Um, and Jennifer Zuccarini, who's a close friend who had 
started a great brand before that was design director of Victoria's Secret was thinking about starting this new this new line. And I thought she was so talented. You know, you look for when you uh, when I think about a great founder, let's say in the fashion business, are you a great designer? But do you also understand technology and the financial aspects of the business? That's very rare. It's very rare. It's like having a direct, what makes a great director on a film is often they understand the talent, how to motivate people. They understand the story, but they also understand the technology and the, the financial aspects. And she really has those three things. And so it's been super fun to be involved in that business and kind of watch her and it grow. Um, but there are all sorts of businesses out there that I've I've had hands in everything from a more recent one like Olipop, which has done really well. And it's been super fun to watch them gain traction in a very established, tough business. Um, you know, if you go into a, if you're on the co on the West Coast in Erwan or anywhere else, a Whole Foods, and you look at that beverage um compartment and see about a thousand different brands in there to stick out from that is so hard and they've done an amazing job through a lot of really not just a great product but gorilla gorilla marketing and being really up to speed on things like tiktok and uh the creator economy and you know i've learned from that i've learned from watching what those guys do so having this range of different like industries and areas where people are investing in these kind of cutting edge things uh I've enjoyed almost all of those, even a couple of them that have gone out of business, which is inevitably going to happen if you if you do enough of this kind of investing. You believe curiosity is a really critical skill for hum for everyone. How do you keep building your curiosity skills? Reading is the best thing. I've just always been a avid reader. I get up in the morning first thing and I go through all the newsletters. And this is where a thing where I don't think I manage my time as well as I could. I get too many and then I feel stressed about having to yeah. read them all. Uh, but, you know, I love reading not just the basic stuff, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, all the, those kind of rags, but also getting a few weird ones here and there and listening to offshoot podcasts of people that are really into their specialties. Um, I think that you know, if you listen to a great podcast, it should inspire a curiosity to want to go do something that you heard on that podcast. And that happens to me all the time. It gives me something else to explore. Um, so I think reading is number one. And I think traveling is number two. Mm -hmm. And by traveling, even if you're a if you're a chief marketing officer or frankly, any executive, the number one thing people don't do enough of, even the ones that think they do, is get out in their stores and, ex and watch your employee and your guest experience. And being out there, not just in the one down the street all the time, but in the one that's on the other coast or the one that's in the Midwest. And you know, I know you live in Cincinnati half the year. We're about to open in Liberty Township there. It'll be our first one in Cincinnati. We'll open a couple of more there before long. But you, know, you can sit in this New York City bubble and think everybody looks and thinks like you do. Um, and it's not true. I have the benefit of growing up in Knoxville, Tennessee, going to college in the Midwest. And I, I really realized like, we're not going to change who we are when we go somewhere else, but we've got to, we've got to figure out how to relate and connect uh, to a town in the Midwest or a town in the Southeast in the same way we do in Brooklyn or in Queens. So that is something where the only way to do that is to get out and see it and realize um you know, there's nothing better from combating bigotry or uh, any of these things than traveling and seeing 
seeing the way other communities and other countries and cultures do things. Yeah. So I would say reading and traveling. Yeah, I agree 100%. Who has been the most inspiring person in your life? Definitely. I, you know, I've joked a couple of times that I have like three gifts in life. There, there was, I don't hear it quite as much lately, but there was this thing for a while as people would ask you what your superpower is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I always said, I think I have three superpowers, um, a very fast metabolism, which used to drive me nuts when I was younger. Cause I couldn't gain any weight. And then when you work at Shake Shack, when you're older, you're like, Hey, this is a pretty good thing. Pretty. Yeah. Two burgers and a shake, please. Yeah. Um, the other one is judging character and quality in others very quickly. Um, that ability in life, I think, has, um, which is both instinctual as well as uh, pattern recognition, I think has served me well, really well. And the third kind of, I think, gift I have is just great parents. And so my mom and dad, to answer your question directly, they're probably my biggest inspiration because they had this great combination of my mom is both smart and artistic um, and puts those things together in a way that few people I've seen can do. And my dad was competitive and, uh, took no excuses about anything. And he was the ultimate in resilience. And so I got a nice combination of those two. I think, um, certainly I got some, picked up some bad habits too, but for the most part, uh, they were probably the biggest influences realistically. Jay, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'd love to keep it going over a shake maybe sometime or, or, or a canned wine with the fun label. Yeah, new labels. You got to check them out. So let's, let's meet at a, at a restaurant in Cincinnati or Lancaster or San Diego or New York. How's I'd that? I'd love to. Thank you so much. And thanks, thanks for taking the time and enjoyed your thoughtful interviews. That was my conversation with Jay Livingston. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one is, do you have a life triangle that is important in your life? This is a concept that Jay went through in some detail. It's one that he tries to bring to life in his life. The triangle is personal life, career, and financial life. He tries very, very much. Sometimes they're out of balance, but he tries very much to keep them in balance because he thinks that keeps us very intentional about our life and our time. Second takeaway, a great leader is both reliable and accessible. Jay talked about how he has felt for many years that that's the criteria for being a great CMO and frankly for being a great leader of any kind, to be reliable, to meet your commitments, and to be accessible to people. When you're that kind of leader, you stay in touch and you can be counted upon. Third takeaway, curiosity. Jay's about as curious as they get. He has lots of side hustles which make him a more interesting person, help him in his his mainstream career. He took a sabbatical of almost two years after 20 years at Bank of America to explore ideas, to renew himself. He is someone who thinks very, very much about keeping his curiosity skills honed. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, Leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.